It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Wednesday, July 15th, 2009. Oh boy, have we got an interesting program lined up for you today. Oh man. Just got off the phone with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper of Westboro Baptist Church. Interviewed her for about 35 minutes. Unfortunately, her cell phone cut out at the tail end of it. We'll play the whole thing. Thank you for tuning in and listening. This is uh, Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's all about the message, the good news of Christ crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ on the cross, propitiating God's wrath, atoning for you, your sins, and making you right before God and His righteousness being imputed to you as if you're the one who lived it. That's what this is all about. That's what we're called to proclaim. That's what we're called to preach, teach, and confess. Uh, the uh, foolishness, if you would, of the message of the forgiveness of sins, Christ and him crucified. Man, I I, I don't know how to explain. <laughs> I, am I excited? Wow. I, I, uh, out on Facebook and Twitter yesterday, I said that I would uh, be interviewing uh, Shirley Phelps Roper of Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. This is the group that does the uh, God Hates Fags signs, God Hates America. We played a... Uh, their rendition of God Hates the World last week on uh, Fighting for the Faith. And, you know, basically, uh, boy, oh boy, this confer- this interview confirmed more everything and more than what I've been saying about them. This is a group that uh, overlooks the uh, mercy of God and forgets that the job of the church is not just preach repentance, but repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's an interesting interview. We're going to get to it really quickly here. And I uh, just want to talk about what we're going to do today on the program. We're going to play uh, the uh, interview with Shally, uh, Shirley Phelps Roper here. Um, I'm going to continue in my uh, walk through the book of Acts. And then for our sermon review, you need to stay tuned for this one. It'll take some time. Uh, but uh, remember Shane Hips, we uh, re- read what he spoke, what he said at the uh, at the uh, Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference. Well, it turns out that uh, Rob Bell and Mars Hill Bible Church invited him to uh, to basically have the pulpit at Mars Hill Bible Church for the past two Sundays. And this last Sunday, he did a sermon on the, quote, spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. And he, this is absolutely an example of Gnostic Buddhist mysticism it dressed up in, quote, Christian drag, and I'm telling you some of the worst scripture twisting I've heard in a long time. This is probably one of the most important sermon reviews that I've done in a while. So today's edition of Fighting for the Faith with uh, the Shally, uh, Shirley Phelps Roper interview and with the Shane Hips uh, sermon review, probably one of the most important programs that we've ever done here at Fighting for the Faith. And so just want to warn you ahead of time, this is going to be a wild ride, and we're really going to run the spectrum here from legalistic, pharisaical, wrath of God, no gracism, 
to, uh, to uh, all the way to Eastern mysticism being preached from a Christian pulpit, if you can even call it that anymore, uh, over there at Mars Hill Bible Church. So settle in. We got some ground to cover. And uh, so what we're going to do here is uh, I'm going to start by playing the interview with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper of Westboro Baptist Church. It runs about 35 minutes long. I'm not going to interrupt it with a commercial. When we Once the interview ends, uh, we'll go into our, our first break, and then I'll come back. And I'm not really going to comment today on uh, the interview with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper. I, I've still got a process, and so I'm putting it out there for you to listen to. And again, the thing you're going to be listening for is Law and Gospel. Uh, my contention is is that this is a group that uh, that ignores the gospel and comes up with every reason possible to not preach it. And uh, this comes out in the interview. It, it's it's a rip roaring interview. It was very fun. It, and uh, my prayers go out to Shirley Phelps Roper and for those at Westboro Baptist Church. I think that they're deceived. And you, you, I guarantee you, you're going to find this interview to be at, at one, on one level entertaining, another le- level informative. So without any further ado, here is my uh, interview just concluded with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper of Westboro Baptist Church. All right, on the line I have uh, Shirley Phelps Roper from Westboro Baptist Church. And you guys are in Topeka, Kansas, right, Shirley? That's correct. Okay, and uh, this uh, Westboro Baptist Church, in fact, I seriously doubt there's anybody out there who hasn't heard of this church, but if you haven't, uh, they've been made famous uh, through the fact that they're at out there picketing at uh, funerals of servicemen and, and just about every star that's been dying lately. You guys have been out there picketing, and they've got some very provocative signs out there saying things like, God hates the world, God hates... Uh, fags, God, you know, they've got some very provocative messages. But before we get into the theological aspects of it, uh, Shirley, just in looking at your guys' website and reading your blog, it looks like you travel a lot. Yes, we do. We actually do travel a lot and more these days, and and there's nothing going to slow that down until um, this nation's, look, it's Isaiah 6, Uh we'll do this until the desolation is upon this nation, and that's coming shortly so we are hitting the road quick early and often now how often are you personally on the road i mean i've seen quite i just saw some pictures on Flickr, you know with you out there without with your signs and it it's got to take its toll i mean how many weeks are you traveling a year and what i do is because of i have 11 children and uh, nine of them still live at home and my baby is seven and so um i work it where i travel uh, someplace distantly that might take a full day or two days, mm-hmm. um, once a week. And then, like in the summer, I try to scoop up all these little ones, and we hit the road and travel someplace where we can get out and back in a matter of so many hours. Got it. Um, once a week also. Okay. So uh, what, what, I, I used to have a job where I traveled quite a bit, and it, you know, I hated it. You know, um, you, what do you do to unwind when you come back from, you know, from traveling so much? Well, I, I talk to my loved ones. I, you know, I swim. Uh, I do, I do the things that help you to overcome that kind of fatigue. Right. You understand? Uh-huh. Uh, you, you got to stay physically fit. You got to have all your, the parts of your day, uh, your personal habits have got to be temperate. And uh, you've got to be in charge of yourself. 
And so I do all those things, but also, look, I couldn't do this a, a couple years ago or three, four, five. This is an evolving process. And as you drill down in your mind and your heart and you search these scriptures and you realize what a glorious day we have embarked upon, that these are the last hours of the last days of all. Um, this is not a big deal. I mean, I, uh, it's called zeal. Okay. And I, uh, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't know any other way to say that except that, uh, you know, that's the answer. Right. And it, I couldn't do anything but this. It's the very picture of Jeremiah, the way he put it was. Uh, you've, you've treated me so bad, he said at one point, that I had decided I'm not going to mention anymore. anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to mention God anymore. But thy word was like a fire shut up in my bones, and I could not forbear. Paul said, a necessity is laid upon me. If I didn't do this, uh, you know, let me be accursed. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's a good transition point. I want to talk a little bit about what I consider to be some pretty strong common ground between us and and get your feedback on, on this common ground. First of all, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think that we are, we're in the last days and uh, no idea if Christ is coming back tomorrow, but I'm I, I sure I'm kind of hoping. But uh, in, in looking at uh, your message, you know, I want to talk about really where I think there's some good, strong, common ground. Number one, I believe that the United States is a completely wicked and rebellious nation when it comes to God's law. And yes. some clear examples of that are, you know, homosexuality and the battle for homosexual marriage, whereas God's word is so clear that not only is it a sin that, you know, the, the homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God and that homosexuality is an abomination before God. Um, also, common ground, abortion is murder, and the legalization of abor- abortion has led to the systematic murdering of 50 million children in the United States since 1973. And this okay. is so terrible. It makes Hitler and Stalin look like amateurs when it comes to killing. Yeah. And, and then uh, as far as divorce, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says that exactly. God, God hates divorce. Yes, I have my nice God hates divorce sign. <laughs> and that's really, no kidding. I have a God hates divorce sign, and I took it with me when I picketed um, that football player. I'm so sorry. We picket. I've picketed so much lately. Uh, the guy's name is escaping me, but I think it's McNair. Like, McNair. Yes, Stephen McNair. Yeah. And so I and I had to make a special new sign for him called uh, God hates adultery <laughs> because you know he didn't he didn't even bother to divorce his wife before he took up with this. Susie. Yeah. So it, so in talking about our common ground, kind of summing it up, I believe that every single American is complicit in these egregious sins against God Almighty and has earned and deserve, uh, deserves God's wrath and punishment for these and sins. And they're getting it. And there's no reason why God couldn't and shouldn't wipe out the United States off the face of the earth because of her wickedness. He is going to, though. Don't you understand? That's what we're telling this nation. Okay. America is doomed. And not just that, but the language is way plainer than that. All right. It is is that this land, the very land, and this is what you're going to see shortly, is going to vomit out the inhabitants. Says you do this for all of these things, this adultery, sodomy, incest. And bestiality. Mm -hmm. This nation is awash in it all. You got that freaks called the furries. And on and on you could go. This nation has got it all going on. And the last piece, the fifth element of Leviticus 18, is you 
teach your children that God is a liar. You take them through some false religious system. And so it says, for these things, the land is going to vomit you out. And look at what this land is doing. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, they have the big uh, news stories about the San Andreas Fault and all the rumblings and the bubblings and how, uh, what's that place up in Yellowstone? And on and on and on. Okay. It's coming. Spewing time cometh. All right. So here, my question for you, that it sounds like we have some pretty good strong, uh, common ground here, is in your view then, how can the United States avert further outpourings of the wrath of God? What does the United States need to do to avert uh, this, this certain doom that's, uh, to, to, that you know, is going to befall her through God's judgment and wrath? Okay, well, first of all, this is simply a theoretical answer because there is no stopping this. Okay. It's too late. It's too late. So, okay, too but late. if we could stop it, what 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 does the U.S. need to do to stop this? Well, since the conscience of the nation, called the United States Supreme Court, said that you must respect, we're certainly not going to have a crime to be engaged in sodomy, and you must respect these beasts that God calls brute beasts made to be taken and to be destroyed. The first thing you have to do is do something equally. In other words, this nation is going to have to put a law in place to criminalize sodomy, and they're going to have to uh, fix the death penalty for it. And the same with all these other outrageous, egregious, murdering, um, you know, don't make me head down that list. Your filthy manner of life, that's what you call it, the filthy manner of life of doomed America. They're going to have to do some very specific, overt acts to put away their sin. Okay, so if the United States criminalizes sodomy, uh, overturns Roe v. Wade, are, are we heading in the right direction? Yeah, but, hon, you're saying if they do, that's never going to happen. God is not going to let them do it. He's chosen their delusions. Once they go so far, he says, now I will choose your delusions. These people are deluded, just like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson got his own personal delusion. They all do. His was... That he's not a black man, but he's a white woman. Now he needs to spend all of his money and all of his time trying to make that be the reality. Okay. All right. That's what, that is what you're facing. Look, honey, one of the prophets said it's like a drunk, like they're drunks. The leaders okay. are like drunks staggering in their own vomit. Okay. Now, do you think the United States is any more wicked than uh, first, second century uh, Roman Empire? Uh, I think that they're probably not necessarily more... Well, I don't know. I don't know. They're filthy. I don't know. This nation can't find enough ways to engage in filthy, vile conduct. I don't know if they're more wicked. But what's the point of the question? It changes nothing. Okay. This nation has, for, 20, for 19 years, had the prophets of God every single day mm -hmm. on their streets warning them, if you go the way of Sodom... You're going to suffer her fate. Okay. They didn't heed and they didn't listen. Well, I I completely agree that the law demands that you obey or uh, or else. You know, there's curses yeah. associated with those who don't obey God's law. But uh -huh. now, but see, now you're a member of Westboro Baptist Church. Now, uh -huh. now in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus tells the church to go into all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Now, I've seen all of your signs. My question for you is, when does Westboro Baptist 
proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to the United States and, uh, you know, the other nations that you guys are taking on? Um, well, first of, first of all, we have our signs that say repent or perish. Okay. I mean, what? What do you, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, that you have to, there is no forgiveness without repentance. Okay. I don't understand. How can we, what more can we say to a nation than put away your idols, put away your false gods, and put away your filthy manner of life and obey? There's no forgiveness without repentance. What right. more shall we add to this message? Well, do you ever overtly discuss the, uh, the free forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ? Well, it's not free without repentance. It's only free if Christ died for your sins. We don't see there's no repentance on the landscape. You want us to tell some people that aren't repentant well, okay. that the love of God is for them? Okay, well, let me try it this way. Um, okay. When when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was hanging naked and bleeding on the cross for our sins, was he dying for the sins of... Wait a minute, for our sins? Well, I, I, well, well, You're not trying to say that all this nation of rebels, that Christ died for their sins? Well, well, I don't want to get into a limited atonement, Calvinistic kind of thing. Let's just, we'll just go... How about just uh, the, what the Bible says kind of a thing? Okay, who do you think Christ died for? He's, he died for all of the sins of his elect. Okay, so the, so the, he died for the sins of his elect. That that would mean that anybody who is elect of God, um, did Christ die for the sins of those who were elect who committed sins of homosexuality? Hun, he died for all of the sins of his elect. Okay. Now listen to this. Acts 13 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, that is, these words, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and here's the important language. As many as were ordained to eternal life uh-huh. believed. Absolutely. Only those. Uh-huh. Only those. Uh-huh. Only those. Right. They, they didn't choose God. They didn't pray the Yeah, the Lord for... Jesus Christ said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Amen. They didn't. They they didn't pray a sinner's prayer and make a decision to become a Christ follower. That's right, because they can't. Right. You're yes. dead in trespasses and sins, and if God does not call you, quicken you uh-huh. to repentance, all right, which is a gift from God. If He doesn't do that, mm-hmm. you're going to hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. So when Christ tells the church to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and you see this in Acts, you know, for instance, you know, the Apostle Peter on, on the day of Pentecost, you know, he he tell, points his bony finger at the crowd and says that they're the ones who, who crucified the Lord, and they were cut to the quick by the Holy Spirit, yes. and they said, what shall we do? And he says, repent every one of you and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There's this twin message of repent and the offering of God's grace and mercy to... No, host- it's not an offering. It's it's, it's not an offering? He's telling them. No, heck no, it's not an offering. And Peter, what you're talking about there, that's so interesting that you brought that example up, because at Acts 7, because that's at Acts 5, what you're talking about. Then you get over to Acts, I mean, Acts 4. Right. If you get over to Acts 7, Stephen gives them the same exact message and tells them, you killed Christ. Right. You killed Christ. Just like Peter did. It's so awesome. You juxtapose those two things. And in both places... The Holy Spirit chose the language of, it cut them to the heart. Right. And in the first place, in the first example, because God, they're both works of God. In the first example, those people that were cut to the heart repented. In the second example, those people that were cut to the heart 
got enraged and they ran on Stephen and they chewed on him for God's sake and they stoned him to death. Right. They murdered. They murdered Stephen. I agree. And so you got to wrap your mind and settle it deep inside your soul. You do not own salvation. I do not own salvation. If the Lord God did not fix his love upon you from eternity past, if the Lord Jesus Christ did not die for your sins on that cross, you will never repent and you will never, ever have saving faith. All right, let me ask you this. Are you a sinner? Of course I'm a sinner. You know that I couldn't possibly answer that question any other way without just being a liar, which is a sin. Right. So then you, you, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. Looky here. Don't, don't use that terminology with me, hon. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ said. Don't pray rotely. Don't call that the Lord's Prayer. Don't do that, the sinner's prayer. Those are just terms of a nation of rebels. They've made the term Christian seem nasty to say because you can call yourself anything and you can use terms. Why don't you just talk about prayer? The Lord Jesus Christ told us how we should pray, and he specifically said, don't do it rotely. Okay. So every time someone starts talking about our Father which art in heaven, blah, 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 you don't have an ounce of sincerity, so just don't say the word. Okay, so when, Furthermore, when, the, disi- when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, yes. say this. Okay, part of the prayer included petitioning God and saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive That's those. Right. And, That's and, right. and, and, and the implication really in the prayer is, is that asking God for the forgiveness of sins is a daily thing, not something you once did when you made a decision for Christ, if you could even do such a thing. But and it, it better be a daily thing. Okay. And by, the, by the very fact that you have an interest and a knowledge that you're saying, you understand, I'm standing on a street, which, which we do every day outside of Chicago in a fancy suburb, and we're holding our signs, and here comes a woman and her daughter, two, about 35-ish and about, you know, 18-ish, maybe 37, 38, somewhere in there. And they're standing behind me, and they're contending vigorously, the woman especially, the mother, with our guys that are behind me, and all of a sudden I hear her saying, what, screaming at the top of her lungs, what about forgiveness? So I just looked over my shoulder and I said, there is no forgiveness without repentance. That woman made a beeline, went right out into that eight lanes of busy traffic so she could get in my face because I was standing on the curb and scream at the top of her lungs. Get the cartoon image of the hair flying out behind you because of this screaming woman. She's screaming, I have nothing to repent for. Wow. That is what this nation thinks. This is an arrogant nation of disobedient rebels, and they think it's all about them, and they think they're all good all the time, and what they've done, unknowingly, ignorantly done, is brought this nation to, to her knees. The Antichrist is sitting in the White House, and very shortly... This nation's destruction is coming. Uh, And when Obama gets his global power grab on and sits on his I'm king of the throne, uh, king of the world throne, and these events that are laid out in Scripture about these last hours of the last days and the pouring out 
and the final indignation upon Jerusalem and the pouring out of the spirit of grace and supplication upon the house of Jacob all start to drop into place like pegs in the pegboard. Okay. It is going to be grim city. All right. Let me, let me come back. Nations. Let me come back to you for a second. You, you've admitted, you know, and by the way, I'm a sinner too. You've, you've admitted to being a sinner and, and it sounds like you sin pretty regularly. It sounds like I said, exactly, where did you come up with that? I, I'm trying to be nice. How did it sound like that? How did it sound like that to you? Well, because you agreed that when you pray, you know, the way the Lord taught us to pray, that you ask for God's forgiveness on a daily basis. Do you sin daily? Um, are you going somewhere with this? Absolutely. I promise I am. But it, it's a okay, fair well, question. Let's, let's just go straight to where you're going. Okay. What is it that you're trying to get to? Well, you sin daily, right? Uh, what is it that you're trying to get to? Real simple. I mean, you're, you're basically saying that uh, America can avoid the wrath of God if she would criminalize sodomy and just basically obey is what it comes down to. You know? Yeah, God, that's very good. Okay, but if you sin daily, then you you don't obey God yourself. How do you know God doesn't hate you? Well, in the first place, do you think that the truth of God and any of these things that we're discussing hinge upon me absolutely not okay well good now so let's move on and let's get to what is it that you want to talk about well it com- it comes back to this the thing is is that you're telling no, people it doesn't come back to it, me it, it does it comes in a sense about me in a real s- i was anywhere in the neighborhood well actually Do you think god consulted me well, in the council halls of eternity absolutely not i had a hand in the preparation of all these things of or course do you not think that i like the next guy find these words and have either you either make a decision are you going to be obedient or are you going to presumptuously sin and justify yourself but see the thing is is that you're a sinner and you don't obey god every no, day the thing is that you are trying to deflect and distract from these principles of the scriptures. I'm not going to talk to you about what I do in a day. When I'm standing on these streets, if you think that I've I've got something going on that I ought not do, you feel free to tell me, and you'd better. You'd better, because that is what constitutes, according to the standards of God, loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. You warn your neighbor that his sin has taken him to hell, and if you don't do that, the scripture says, you hate your neighbor in your heart. Now, what is it that you want? But it's see, it's more than just naked obedience. You said that God. No, it's not more than. It's pretty doggone simple. See what that's the that is just the strategy of a rebel. No, Let's no, make no. This I am not rocket science. Let's make this so complicated that we can all toss around words and justify ourselves. Surely, There's it, no justification. Surely, surely, it's simple here. I mean, you're it telling is. people it they need simple. to obey, and you so? yourself don't. You, you, commi- know, you don't have. What do you mean? I don't. If you commit sins, you are not obeying. Yeah, how did you jump over this Grand Canyon? No, from this is me not. You saying that you have to obey to that I don't obey. You're telling people that they simply need to obey God, but the reality is, is where that, did you get to your your leaping over to that I don't obey? You are a sinner, and you you ask for God's forgiveness. That means you fall so short. Let me see if I got this right. Do you do you have even a, a inkling of what the scripture that's talking about 
imputed sin. Do you know what imputed sin is? Oh, absolutely. Adam's sin is counted against me as if I'm the one who committed it. Uh huh. So you think you're going to get off the hook from asking God to forgive you for that and for every other thing that you do ignorantly or deliberately? Listen, if I, hey. Yes or no? I'm guilty. I'm I'm the chief of sinners. Uh, Paul was wrong. I'm the chief of sinners. And I sin today. Yeah, hon, and you seem mighty proud of it, but never mind that. (laughs) Never mind that. Let's get back to what it is that you're trying to avoid with all of this. Look at the monkey conversation. This whole thing where you're trying to drill this down to pretend it has something to do with me. Here's what it is. Actually, it's not you. you. It's the solution you're offering. If you have savings, I'm not offering you squat. If you have saving, saving faith, it is what James said. You say that you have faith. Right. But you have no works. Uh-huh. You talk to me about your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You talk to your faith. If you don't have works, the works that demonstrate that you have saving faith, uh-huh. that is the conduct that you engage in. Right. Because you're not going to save yourself by your work. Right. But if you engage in conduct that demonstrates that you have saving faith, in other words, you warn your fellow man to flee the wrath to come or do any other thing that's obedient. Uh-huh. You said yourself. That the Lord Jesus Christ said to get out there and warn every creature. I completely agree with you. I, I disagree on the solution you're offering. The solution? I already told you at the beginning of this. There is no solution. It's every man for himself at this point. If you have an interest in your own never-dying soul, you had better see to it that you get busy preparing to meet your God. Which means this. David put it this way at Psalm 27:4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And David and also Lord. said, Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. You see, we're right. we, we absolutely... there's no fear of God. See, listen to you. Even as you say the verse, uh-huh. you don't carry it. You don't drill it down to make it real to this generation. You said you're feared. There's no fear of God in this country. What, are you kidding me? Have you ever stood out and listened to these people talk? Absolutely. God is dead. Ha, ha, your God's a big whip. He can't kill but a couple of soldiers at a time. And blah, blah, and on and on they go. Uh, I debate uh, non-Christians on a regular basis. But the message I bring yet is... you think that you have the right to offer them something that God has specifically kept from them. However, I don't know who the elect are. Is there a tattoo? That's that right. Are, so that, shut up about trying to manage the message and tell them the truth. I don't. I'm, if they I, have a heart to know their God, actually, they're going to be like that 144,000 Jews and that language that is used there that says that they will mourn for him. Surely. You see, if God doesn't give you a heart to know him, you're not going to have a heart to know him. Surely, aren't you the one managing the message, though? You, you're out there preaching wrath and repentance, 
But you're not also preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. If you look again at Christ's words in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, he says that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's not. I don't know who the elect are. I don't know who's going to respond. I don't know who God has predestined. They don't have what a, you've done is thrown up a straw man, and you're determined to beat the crap out of it. What's the straw man? The straw man is that we do not tell these people that they have got to repent to have forgiveness. So they, so isn't that isn't if you make repentance contingent upon them, aren't you basically making it contingent upon their decision, which you said they no, can't what, do? What you're doing is kicking against a conundrum that you don't understand. Actually, I I see rather clearly in Scripture that repentance itself is a gift from God. Exactly. And if God doesn't give you the gift, you're not going to have it. But that doesn't negate my duty to tell him. But you need to tell him the whole message. It's not just the wrath of God. It's also the forgiveness of sins and the full pardon offered in Christ. There's no forgiveness without repentance. When there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. What do you want from me? It says, because of all these things, the wrath of God abides upon the children of disobedience. But it also says... How do you think that I'm going to say that any different than to just say it straight up? Have you ever read the passage that says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Oh, it, my goodness. It, God's kindness leads us to it, it's, it's his loving kindness to his people. That's what leads because us. of the but fact that he's, to, it's at Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. What you really mean to be saying is, is I am determined to insist that Christ died for all men's sins. In which case, if you're going to do that, then you had better also say, therefore, there's no hell, and everyone can go to heaven, and you can live like the very devil himself. I've never made such a claim, and you've, you've you just... You have to make that claim, evil, or else you're just going to have to evil say can, God is not evil, sovereign. Evil Knievel could not jump God that canyon. not sovereign, that man has more power than God. No, it's that... What does it say in Scripture? Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. No! doesn't say that. Don't you pervert that verse. Okay, I rebel. can read it in Greek. I what heard would you... you say, I heard you pervert the verse. Okay, so, so uh, uh, let, let me, let's pull it up here. You're saying I'm perverting it. Romans chapter well, I 10. I know what it says. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, so the faith, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through no. the word of Christ. Wait a minute. Where the heck, what are you reading? Romans, verse Romans chapter. Romans 10, 17 says, you ready? Listen careful. Okay. So then, faith. Mm-hmm. Cometh by hearing, uh-huh. comma, and hearing by the word of God. It says the word of Christ. Hara he pistos ek hakes he de hakon dia. No, I'm not. I'm reading it to you from the Greece. Through the rematas Christu. It's through the word of Christ. On the wrong thing. See, listen to you. I'm reading it from the Greek here. It That's says the word of Christ, me. the rematas Christu, the word yeah, of Christ. Here's, here's what you're doing. You do not want to know what this verse says because you want it to say what you want it to say. I'm, no, actually, I, so I, then, I, I want to bend the knee to the word of God. Then so, be quiet Then tell me. Okay, be I'll do quiet that. for a moment. So then faith cometh by hearing, comma, and hearing by the word of God. You can understand that if you read it this way. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the command of God. If God does not cause your ears to hear these words, you will never hear them. 
and there's no chance that you'll hear them if there's not someone telling you the truth about what those words say. But the truth isn't just raw repentance. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's God's kindness. You just talk in circles and throw so many words in the air. Drill it down and get some discipline upon it. The Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of his elect. And if he didn't die for your sins, you're toast. Do uh, you I, understand that? That's, I, you don't have any hope of salvation. Great. So but then when, who who are the elect? Who are the elect? Can you spot them on the street? You know them. Here's how you know them. And you'll find this language repeated again and again and again. You ready for this? I'm ready. You can start with Moses saying it in Deuteronomy. God is faithful. And he's cheapest covenant and mercy with them that love him. And demonstrate that by obeying his commandments. Then are you of the... Jesus Christ said, if you love me, keep, keep my commandments. Then you don't qualify because you still sin. See, there you go, rebel. You want to say... But you're the one who's the rebel. you and your conduct. Here's what David said. Try, let's go with this, this direction. David said, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Absolutely. And on the flip side, uh-huh. blessed, he's going to tell you that same man in another description. Okay. Blessed is the man to whom God will impute Righteousness. Right on. You do, just hold on. Right. No, I, I. You I, just hold on. Uh huh. You, if you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, that is your only hope. I agree. Because if you think that running your mouth about how you sin and you fall short, see, your stumbling block is the Lord Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. You don't want it to be. By his will and by his choice. You want it to be in the control of the human, that the human can do something to get salvation. No, I don't. You're just out there in limbo, and you're just unable to do anything about it. No, I don't want to have... If if my salvation depends any part on me, I'm doomed. I am so, so gone, it's not even funny. Yes, you are. Okay. And you are. I mean, I have just today earned hell, and I'm not I'm proud not of it. I'm interested in your pseudo-repentance, in your uh, professions. I don't want to know about your sins. If you're ashamed of them, then keep your mouth shut about them and don't do it anymore. But see, the thing is, right? aren't, uh, are, you, are, you, are you sinless now? Are you greater than the Apostle Paul? Okay, now let's go back to your original nonsense. Okay. Your original nonsense was... Now, so what can this country do to fix it? Well, first I told you, nothing, because it's too late. But then I told you, because you see, you didn't, you didn't, you were not disciplined in your question. And that's the problem with most of this nation. You got no discipline at all, and, and you surely don't have discipline when it comes to talking about God. So here it is. Listen carefully. You can have the blessings of God upon your nation. If you have righteous policies, that's why I told you that the United States Supreme Court spoke for this nation and said, we will not have sodomy be a crime. 
you don't even have to care about heaven. You can still have the blessings of God in this life and never see heaven because you obey. You can obey to a point, and you can have righteous policies a nation can have, and you can have some blessings from God. You don't have to have total destruction from God. Doesn't the law demand... You also know... Wait a second. Doesn't the law demand perfect obedience? When did God start grading on a curve when it came to nations? I, I don't see that in the scriptures. I, and I don't know where you got that straw man. You, that you just you, tossed up and commenced to kick it. I'm, I'm just reciting back your words. You basically said no, that the, I didn't say if the nation about has a grading on a curve, if it has righteous was, policies, if you it don't ha- have to have an interest in heaven to be obedient and have blessings from God in this life. But wait a second. If if I can be obedient to God in this life, then what do I need Christ for? I mean, seriously, I mean, going back to my salvation has to have something to do with my conduct. No, it has nothing to do with your conduct. The point that the point of the the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is to show us that we're transgressors and that we're sinners. The law is not. Do you think that all of the children of Israel were saved and went to heaven? No, that's right. But yet, was it based on their obedience, or was it because they had Israel? Well, of course, their destruction was based on their disobedience. Well, you know it was. Well, hold on a second. Were those who were saved in Israel? Wait a minute. Well, hold on. No, no. With that proposition, I'm I'm answering you. I'm was based on their disobedience. Surely, I'm answering you. No, it's based on faith. They didn't trust. Oh, yikes, 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 yikes. No, they didn't have the faith of Abraham. Go over there to 2 Chronicles 36 and read the word. Uh, Read Galatians. Read the word. Galatians chapter 2. Come on. Chapter 2 is not talking to the children of Israel at the time of their destruction, the going in of the Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience. You said... It's lack of faith. Disobedience shows up as a uh, fruit of lack of faith. Hello? Hello? Shirley? Hello, Shirley? Shirley? Hello? 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 Oh, man. (laughs) Gotta get her back. Well, unfortunately, lost the connection there. I tried calling her back, but surprisingly, she wouldn't pick up. So there you have it. We'd love to get your feedback on it. We're going to take, we're a little long here, and so we're going to take our first break. You got to pay some bills. And uh, so, you know, when we come, you know, I'm not going to really comment on it, but would love to get your feedback. Would love to find out what you guys thought of that interview. So if you'd like to email me, you can at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's right, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter and receive my subversive microblogging tweets. My name there at Twitter is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We're back. Interesting interview. I might take pieces of it apart in uh, future editions of Fighting for the Faith. Kind of pick it apart and show, kind of deconstruct what it is that I was accomplishing, trying to accomplish there. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that your financial support is essential, critical, uh, not uh, not optional for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. If you want us to be able to continue to do the type of work that we're doing, for me to be able to interview people like Shirley Phelps Roper and do the sermon reviews that we do, then we need your help in order to do it. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can uh, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And like I said, interesting interview. I'm not going to comment on it. Now. I need some time to decompress after that and to kind of let it sink in and and uh, think about it. In fact, I think some of you all are going to have the ability to uh, respond quicker than I do. Again, if you'd like to email me, let me know what you think. Well, you know, what did you learn? What what was your takeaway from that uh, that interview slash well debate? I guess is what you could call it. And uh, we'll go from there. Now, I'm going to switch gears. We've been working our way through uh, Acts. We started yesterday, and we read four chapters in the book of Acts. And uh, w- the reason why I'm going through Acts is because, you know, it, it's so clear that uh, so many Christians do not have what I would consider a biblical opinion as to how it is that we are to go about proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, I mean, you have Rick Warren going out there and, you know, basically with the contention that we don't have the right to tell people the good news. We first have to earn it by showing them love or whatever it is and and then pray, oh, please, 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 uh, you know, wait for, you know, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. No, <laughs> that's not what the disciples did. It's not what Jesus taught the disciples to do. And uh, the book of Acts kind of gives us a real clear picture of how the early church was launched and the authority and the boldness for which they had for proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, which is exactly what Christ told them to do. And notice that was one of the themes of my interview slash debate with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper. All right, uh, let me continue then. We're in Acts chapter 5, and uh, I, I'm going to read with a little bit of commentary, and then uh, we'll take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to do our uh, our sermon review, which is going to take some time. Our sermon review is of Shane Hips preaching at Rob Bell's church. I mean, if you think uh, Mars Hill Bible Church is a uh, Christian church and that they're proclaiming a sound biblical doctrine, well, this ought to upset your apple carts. It's uh, pretty bad there. This, wow, what, what I heard, what I reviewed, yeah. We'll go through this together. All right. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I'm going to point something out here. He could have done that. It was his money. The point is is that he's putting on a pretension, uh, basically a farce, a lie, uh, a fiction that he sold it all and you know and whoa oh, what a holy person he is. He's trying it's false piety if, if you would. Peter said to Ananias, "Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own?" After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young talk about church discipline. <laughs> yeah, try this one. <laughs> Yeah, there'd be some splainage to do nowadays. We continued. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, oh, yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are now at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. I wonder if there's any shadow ministries nowadays on TBN. Uh, Then the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with uh, unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priests came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to them to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in the prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and has, and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. Notice uh, here we got Peter talking about repentance and the forgiveness of sins again. And speaking it boldly, uh, even in the face of persecution, so much for letting your neighbor know you love him first. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis arose, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. <sighs> Love that. Even in the face of persecution, people hating them, threatening them, they, were, they did not cease preaching Christ. <clears throat> we continue. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint about the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Apparently serving tables was not as important as preaching the word of God, and the apostles were not about ready to give it up. Hmm. Therefore, brothers, pick up Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice the apostles here in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. They devoted themselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Not their own words, not their own ideas, but the actual word of God. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a, f uh, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmen, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they would, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up trouble in the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." And then the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed uh, him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I, 
will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and, the circ- and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of all the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt, over all his possessions. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, He sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. But... As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for forty years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to, uh, to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of the heavens. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphon, the images you made to worship. I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that gave, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophets say, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. With which of the prophets did your forefathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. We're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we'll dive into our sermon review for today. Reviewing a sermon by Shane Hips, preached at Rob Bell's Mars Hill Bible Church. I'm telling you, probably one of the most horrific, quote, sermons I've ever heard coming from a church that's supposed to be a Christian church. You don't want to miss it. Be sure to stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'd love to get your feedback. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. 
My name there is Pyre Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am the Chief of Sinners. Yeah, if you think that Christian radio is supposed to give you uh, three easy steps so that you can stop sinning, well, uh, well, then uh, you're not listening to the right station. Maybe you should tune in to the Piety Channel or... Tune in to Joel Osteen. He'll, he'll teach you how to have your best life now. <sighs> That's right. Christianity is all about what Christ has done for you. The good news of the proclamation that you are declared righteous because of Christ and are saved freely by his grace and mercy. So Christianity is not a performance-based religion. If it was, then there's only one performer's performance that counts, and that's Christ's for you. That's right, the good news of the message of the cross. You need to hear it because you sin daily and you sin much. And Christianity, the gospel, believe it or not, it's the gospel that produces this, the fruit of repentance in our life. That's why I keep coming back to it over and over and over again. Because like the Apostle Paul, I want to know nothing among you except for Christ and Him crucified. All right, switching gears, it's time for... That's right, sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. Y'all remember Shane Hips? We talked about him last week. Shane Hips spoke at uh, Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, Preachers Conference, and boy, did he have some weird stuff to say. Well, it doesn't end there. The gift that keeps on giving... Now, that would be Rob Bell. He's allowed him, uh, Shane Hips, to uh, preach at Mars Hill. And um, Shane has uh, something to say regarding what he calls the practice of silence. Apparently, this is a very popular spiritual practice that is making the rounds. 
And we are going to compare what Shane Hips said at Rob Bell's church to the Word of God. Is he really correctly teaching us what God's Word says? And did Jesus practice the spiritual discipline of silence? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to compare. So get your thinking caps on. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to need to do some comparative work today. This is a very serious issue because I tell you where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, there's more than smoke coming out of Mars Hill Church nowadays. Definitely fire mixed with sulfur. It's not good. All right, kill that music, would you? Yeah, thank you. All right, so without any further ado, uh, here is um, Shane Hips preaching at Rob Bell's Mars Hill uh, Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And here we go. Yeah, you cheer because you're here. So I like Michigan a lot. Uh, you know one thing, though, that uh, when it's 115 out that you don't have? Mosquitoes. You don't have those. I forgot about those. Minnesota, man, state bird. They're giant. They're like, they're crazy. Uh, so, so glad to be back. Those of you who were not here with us last week, I was uh, guest teaching as well. I get to do it uh, again today. I'm very excited. We are actually in the second week of a series that you all are doing. Uh, this is a series on spiritual practices. So um, I am... Uh, finishing out my time with you, but I'm actually only in the second week of something you all are doing. Uh, last week, I was invited to come and teach on fasting, which I went ahead and neglected, and I, and I taught instead on feasting, and I hope that some of you had a chance to do some of that this week. Um, this week, I will be obedient and teach on what I was asked to teach on, and um, this uh, practice they asked me to teach on was, was one of these practices that is completely unnatural to me as a human. Um, something about my personality resists it at all costs. And so um, the, uh, it, it's been a hard practice over the years for me to do. And yet, it has become probably the most transformative thing that has opened me to God in ways that nothing else ever has. And so as a consequence, I have, uh, I have tended to this practice the way you might tend to a newborn infant, this incredibly fragile but powerful thing that needs to be cared for. And so I, I love this practice. I've grown to love it. Um, in my tradition, I'm a Mennonite. By the way, he's talking about the practice of silence, and he's going to define that a, a little bit better as the sermon progresses. Again, what is our job here at Fighting for the Faith? To compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So he's going to make a case uh, that uh, there's a spiritual discipline known as the discipline of silence. And uh, you got to pay real close attention to how he's going to define this. He's giving a little history about himself. He, he's a Mennonite pastor in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So we continue. Uh, that's the church I'm a part of in pastoring in Phoenix. And in the Mennonite tradition, for many, many years, their whole way of orienting faith was around this idea of following Jesus. I know that sounds radical. Um, <laughs> but there actually is a difference. A lot of Christian traditions throughout history thought about believing in Jesus. Notice the big difference. Uh, we're not about just believing in Jesus. We're about following Jesus. The difference, I would say, is the difference of faith and salvation by faith and trust and belief in Christ 
all of those being synonyms, or salvation by works, following Jesus was kind of the main thing you do. And, um, but the Mennonites have always understood this following. And the way they've understood it, uh, which has become more and more popular, is this very earthy following. Like, Jesus put his foot there, you put your foot there. And so it becomes this sort of simple, ethical way of living in the world. Just this real simple question. Where am I supposed to put my feet again exactly? Uh, Follow what Jesus did, how he actually behaved. Yeah, he really cheesed off a lot of people by telling him the truth, and they ended up crucifying him. Should I do the same thing? Uh, and this is wonderful. I'm thrilled by it. I think it's been extremely helpful to many, many people. There is one part, though, of following Jesus that I think gets missed, that kind of gets skipped over. And it's understandable because there's not a lot in the Bible uh, about this. There is some, but it's tucked away in weird places. Um, okay, now pay real close attention to what he's about to say. And I'm going to ask you just the simple question. If this is a practice that we are supposed to be, quote, following Jesus on, why isn't it clearly taught as a practice that we should follow? And we're going to just take a look at some of the passages that he mentions ever so briefly to see if they support this spiritual discipline, at least the way he's describing it. We continue. This is basically learning to follow the spiritual practice of Jesus, not just the ethics of Jesus, the spirituality of Jesus. So um, what does he what does that mean? The spirituality of Jesus I'm hearing words, and it nothing's coming, nothing's registering here. The spirituality of Jesus? Huh? If you were to actually read these passages, the reason they're hard to find is that they're like, they're kind of used by the gospel writers as little parenthetical asides. Little statements are kind of thrown in there, and then they move on to something much, much more interesting. Okay, stop for a second. Got to think about this for a second. Okay, already we, we've got an interesting dilemma. These parenthetical historical notes, you know, details of the story, little asides. It, <clears throat> there's a phrase we use uh, in uh, American parlance, uh, missing the forest because of the trees. He's already saying that oh, these, are, these, these are really obscure, but because uh, yeah, there's more interesting things to talk about. So we're not going to talk about the main thing. We're not going to talk about what Jesus taught. We're going to look at the, 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 the tiny little glue that keeps things together between the different gospel stories. And uh, we're going to really focus in on that. Do you think he's missing the point? We continue. And so, um, but if you actually find the verses, which they're a little bit, they're easy to skip over. They're like a rose in a cornfield. You know, they're, they're not that easy to see. But when you pick out these roses, you can create a little beautiful bouquet. And you can begin to see the theme of the way that Jesus began to practice spirit. Okay, so we're, basically he's saying we're going to uh, pick out the, uh, the, the little singular flowers along the way. Uh Okay, um, just not seeing it here. Okay, and then eventually you're going to be able to create a bouquet of the... Well, all right, we continue with this um, sermon. Spiritual practices. So, um, let's begin 
with uh, our passages this morning. Just a few we're going to go through real quickly. Mark chapter 135, very early in the morning. Okay, Mark chapter 1. I'm writing this down. Mark 1.35. Again, I told you you're going to need your Bible. So if you ain't got your Bible, you're going to want to get it out. Because remember, what are the three most important rules to properly interpret the Bible? Most important are context, context, and context. And we here at Fighting for the Faith, subscribe to the historical grammatical method. That is the understanding that God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity, inspired the very words of Scripture to be written. Okay? So grammar's important. Okay? Let's listen. So he's going to quote a, quote, verse to us. Verse. All right, let's hear what he has to say. Well, it was still dark. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Hold on a second here. All right. Mark chapter 1. All right. Let's see here. Okay. And rising very early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place. He stopped there. Let's see if he gets the the last part of it. Hang on. Luke 4. Whoa. Hang on a second here. Backing up the tape because I want you to see. This is the number one tactic of those who are deceivers and agents of the devil. Is that many times they try to draw a conclusion by not reading the entire verse. Okay, hang on a second here. I want you to catch this. I want you to notice if you, if, in fact, if you don't have your Bible open, you need to get one open. I don't care what translation you're working with. Hopefully you are working with a translation and not a paraphrase. A paraphrase will not help you here. And if you've got the message paraphrase, what I'd like you to do, I know it's the summertime, take that thing over and you, you know, there's several better uses for the message paraphrase. And I'm telling you, the paper is, is, it would probably make a decent toilet paper, and that would be a better use than actually studying this. So, um, toilet paper mulching, um, a fire starter, uh, th- using it to start a barbecue, fine uses for the message paraphrase, target practice if you happen to be a gun owner, another fine use of the message paraphrase, reading it for biblical understanding, not a valid use. So, uh, but if that being said, um, Mark 1, 35, okay? Read it right now. I'm going to read it to those of you who don't have the ability to have a Bible in front of you. Let me read it to you. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus, that's he, departed and went out to a desolate place. And we continue. And there he prayed. There Jesus Prayed. So Jesus went to a desolate place and he prayed. The Greek word, by the way, if you were wondering, uh, for uh, prayer is um, it is prosukomai, prosukato. Actually, that you know. Anyway, the, the the reason I'm saying that is you know this is in uh, okay. So prosukomai is the Greek verb there, and it literally means to petition the deity, to petition a deity, to pray, okay? Now, I want to point this out. It doesn't say that Jesus went to a desolate place 
and sat and cleared his mind and sat in silence in the lotus position. It says that Jesus went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. His mind was not quiet. He was petitioning his father. It's important. Let me see. Let me continue. It says, okay, so there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. Okay, so... Mark 1.35 does not teach that Jesus sat in silence. It says that he went to a quiet place, a desolate place, in order to pray. Okay. Let's, uh, let's now listen carefully. Watch what he misses here in his description of the spiritual discipline of, quote, solitude. Not that easy to see, but when you pick out these roses, you can create a little beautiful bouquet, and you can begin to see the theme of the way that Jesus began to practice spiritual practices. So, um, let's begin with uh, our passages this morning. Just a few we're going to go through real quickly. Mark chapter 135. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Luke 4:42 Notice he missed the part about Jesus praying. That's very that's a very important omission on his part. Let's continue. Let me back it up just a couple of seconds and let's uh hear where he goes next. Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place. Luke 4:42 At daybreak Jesus went out to a solitary place. Hold on, Luke 4:42. Okay, we're going to this is really important cuz again, it's not what he's saying, it's what he's omitting. Luke 4:42. It says and when it was day Jesus departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Okay, so I wonder if this is a... In fact, this itself, funny enough, Luke 4.42 is a direct cross-reference to Mark one thirty-five. So when we look at the fuller context of the scriptures, okay, um, what we find is, is that this being a cross-reference, um, we know what's going on. Jesus is finding a desolate place not to just do nothing, but to pray. We continue with uh, Shane Hips here. Mark 6.46 after... Okay, hang on a second here. Mark 6.46. Let's do a little biblical work here. See if what if he's uh, going to get the bigger context. Mark 6. And let's see. We want verse 46. And let me get the context. And immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him onto the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. Mark six forty six. He went on to the mountain to pray. It doesn't say that Jesus went up onto the mountain in order to practice the spiritual discipline of silence. Let's listen carefully. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Okay. Matthew fourteen thirteen. To, to pray, Shane, not to sit in silence. When Jesus heard what ha- what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Okay. 
I think that was. Let me get the. Let me back this up in order to get the reference there on that that last passage. Hang on, make sure we got this. Hang on a second. Forty six. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Matthew fourteen thirteen. When Matthew fourteen thirteen. Let's take a look at the context. Matthew fourteen. Okay, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot. Okay, let's see. What Does it say that he was practicing solitude? Was he, that he was practicing silence? No. When Jesus heard what, ha- what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, this was after John the Baptist's death, by the way. The context there in Matthew fourteen thirteen is uh, the death of Jesus had just heard the news of the death of uh, John the Baptist. And Luke five sixteen, but he would with. Hang on a second here, Luke five sixteen. Let's take a look before he does. Luke five sixteen. Okay, but now, okay, and he charged them, tell them, go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof of them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and he healed their infirmities. But he would would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Okay, let's see what he says. Withdraw to deserted places places this last one is he missed the prayer part is um everything else was past tense jesus did something but this last one the actual verb is a present continual verb meaning he would repeatedly do this he would withdraw to solitary places okay hang on a second here let me check his greek he would withdraw to desolate places um all right so his point is Okay, how to stay in uh, to exist? He with um, active indicative to withdraw. He hupakero. Uh, okay, all right. So uh, even if he's right, actually, this is a valid point. This is a continual thing that he would do. He would regularly withdraw to desolate places and pray. Notice when he mentioned Luke five sixteen. He omitted the pray part. He just wanted to point out that Jesus withdrew to desolate places. What would Jesus do when he was in those desolate places? He would pray. Never once says in Scripture that Jesus withdrew to a desolate place in order to sit in silence. There is a huge difference between finding a quiet place to pray and communicate and petition God without distraction. And and there's a big difference to that. And um, finding a desolate place and clearing your mind. Okay? I want you to know this because why? He's trying to make a he's trying to make the point that here we're we are to follow Jesus's quote spirituality. Yet he's not correctly describing Jesus's spirituality to you because Jesus never once according to the uh the gospels uh, withdrew to a silent place for the sake of silence. He would continually find a quiet place in order to 
pray, to not be distracted, to petition and speak to God the Father. This is important because what you're going to hear following this, the conclusion of this, the thing he's going to draw out of it, are not correct biblical conclusions. We continue. And one of the things that Jesus is doing, this whole point of solitude, is actually because he's after something else, which is silence. This is what Jesus was after. He would go into the wilderness for silence. And the reason we know this is because this is what the traditions have always taught. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to put tradition over Scripture. Silence in order to pray. You, you, you know, I think only of all the passages that you mentioned there, Shane, uh, the, only one of them did you mention the fact that he went into a desolate place in order to pray. To, again, hang on, this is our, one of our traditions here at Fighting for the Faith. This is what we call an adventure in missing the point. I love doing that. All right, so here's the deal. The important thing wasn't the solitude. It was the fact that Christ went to pray. Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, to find a quiet place where you're not distracted in order to pray, to communicate to God, to petition God. In, in the book of Acts, you know, when we read yesterday's uh, from, uh, you know, early on, we read that the, that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. It doesn't say they devoted themselves to prayer, to silence, sitting there and clearing your mind, but to prayer, to petitioning God, to speaking with and to God, to talking to God. Jesus would, you know, he was constantly surrounded by crowds and he would find quiet places in order to pray, not to sit there in silence. This man is twisting God's word. It's subtle and you'd miss it if you don't know how to look for things. Again, context, context, context. Those passages that he quoted do not teach solitude. They teach prayer, finding a quiet place to pray. And Jesus had understood this, and so he would find a way to go into the wilderness. Now, this wasn't just about external silence. This was also about finding internal silence. That is a bald-faced lie. And he cannot bring a single passage of Scripture to bear that out. He just inserted that into the text. Show me one clear passage of Scripture that says that Jesus went to, in order to find internal silence. Internal silence sounds like this. Yet Jesus wasn't about internal silence. He wanted to pray and communicate with his father hard to have internal silence when you're praying don't you think shane so there's a uh, both going on here now the tradition this comes from back in the book of first kings elijah was a prophet okay now watch this again a complete misuse of that still small voice passage listen and he had this experience where he was trying by the way he just called the passage from first kings uh, a tradition 
Wouldn't that really actually be scripture? Just pointing it out. Trying to do what God was asking him to do. He had this miserable, horrible, awful, no good, very bad time. And, uh, and he basically wandered into the wilderness looking for God. And there on this mountain, a giant wind came through and it rent the mountain and destroyed all the mountains around him. And after the wind came, the Lord was not in the wind. Okay, got to do some uh, comparative work here again. Oh, man, I tell you. Um, hang on. <laughs> the passage in question is 1 Kings chapter 19. Okay. I just, you know, I've got to point this out because you're going to find something he says very funny if you get the punchline ahead of time. All right, so the context here, 1 Kings chapter 19, it's right after uh, the showdown with uh, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Things went very well for Elijah because there happens to be the one true God. Things not so well for the prophets of Baal and Asherah and those who sat at the table of Jezebel. They were all, um, well, killed. Because uh, it was a showdown to the death, it turns out. It was one of those uh, religious death matches. And so uh, even though God rained down fire from heaven and uh, took up the uh, the offering that Elijah offered there on Mount Carmel, um, we read, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So the queen of uh, of Israel, um, that would be Jezebel, um, basically has promised to have um, Elijah murdered. So then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and then he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he took, and he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake uh, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in, in his strength of, of that food for forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I want to point something out to you here. Uh, in verse uh, 9, does it not say that the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, I'm just pointing this out. Uh, it's obvious that uh, Elijah heard the word of God prior to the still small voice incident, right? I'm just pointing it out because uh, Elijah was hearing God's voice, was hearing his word, and he's interacting with it, right? 
And so the word of the Lord asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What was the reason why uh, Elijah is at Mount Horeb? Context tells us that the reason why he was there uh, was because he was running for his life. His face had shown up on that television show, Israel's Most Wanted. That's the equivalent of what's going on here. Uh, Queen Jezebel wants him dead and has promised to kill him, right? So he runs for his life. He's a fugitive. The reason he's at Mount Horeb is not because he's seeking the presence of God. No. The reason he's there is because he's running for his life, trying to save his skin. Doesn't sound all that spiritual, does it? Okay, and he said, and he, that's the 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 word of the Lord, God's voice says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Now notice, this is the second time that the question is asked to him. The first time, there was no trumpets, no fanfare, no wind, no storm, no still small voice. Just the word of the Lord comes to him and asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he, the, that word of the Lord tells him to go st- you know, to, you know, stand because God's going to pass by. He's being obedient. And what happens the second time? Then you get the earthquake, you get the, you get the wind, you get the you get the low whisper, and what happens? The the question is repeated. This time with a little bit of fanfare in the presence of the Lord. So Elijah raps, you know, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, am only left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is sounding a little bit redundant. So then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of, uh, of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, shall anoint, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall uh, Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that I have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not been that has not kissed him. Now, I'm going to point something out to you here. Was Elijah on Mount Horeb in order, was he there because he was practicing the spiritual discipline of silence? No. He was there because he was running for his life. When the, quote, still small voice spoke, was that the, uh, the, was that an example of the spiritual discipline of silence? No, because what immediately preceded it 
the wind and an earthquake. Hardly silent events, uh, don't you think? So listen carefully now to how Shane Hips is going to interpret for us what this said. And keep in mind, when God speaks from the still small voice, he asks a certain question, and this is the second time he's asked it. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've got a job for you to do. Go anoint these king, these guys kings. Well, listen up. And then right after that, there was this huge earthquake, and everything began trembling and shaking. And then after the earthquake, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12, it says... And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a small, still voice. Now, wait a second. Remember, wind, earthquake, fire, none of them silent, right? A small, still voice. And after the fire, a small, still voice. And right after this, in this passage, Elijah covers his face, falls to the ground, and he actually hears God for the first time. Lie. Absolute lie. Could not be a bolder-faced, absolute lie. And the text itself proves that he's lying. Elijah hears God for the first time? You've got to be kidding me, Shane. But then again, maybe you know that the people who are listening to you are going to swallow this lie whole and never do the biblical work of comparing what you just said to the Word of God. Absolutely a lie. We just showed in the context of 1 Kings chapter 19 that this God in the still, still small voice asks, asks uh, sorry about that, he asks... Elijah, the same question he asked him earlier without any fanfare. Elijah was constantly hearing God's voice and it had nothing to do with fire, earthquakes, or still smalls, anything. And he wasn't there to experience God's presence. And he wasn't there because he was practicing the spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. He was running for his life. Nothing spiritual about that. So this passage does not support and or teach the spiritual discipline of silence. Just like none of the verses that he quoted about Jesus show that Jesus engaged in the spiritual discipline of silence. Stay tuned because you will not believe what he, how he defines that and then teaches you how to practice it. Oh, well, we're going to get to all of that today. So he found God in this place. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is the translators have used small, still voice, which is fine. You can do that. Uh, but, but the actual Hebrew does not use the word voice anywhere. So, in fact, if you do a more literal translation of what the Hebrew is saying, it is actually a gentle stillness. Who cares? It doesn't teach the spiritual discipline of solitude and silence at all when you read it in context. Afterwards, a gentle stillness. So what that means is that in Elijah's pursuit of God, when he's looking for God in the wind and the earthquake and the fire, God... Uh, wait, Elijah was pursuing God? He was running for his life and God said, what are you doing here? Again, complete misreading of the passage. God is nowhere to be found in the spectacle. God is to be found in this gentle stillness. That is not what the text teaches at all. And this is what Jesus repeatedly practiced. Again, 
complete bald-faced lie. Jesus went into quiet places to pray, not to sit in silence and listen for the whisper. Finding gentle stillness. Absolute lie. Absolute bald-faced lie. And Shane, I challenge you to come onto my program and prove this. Prove your point. You have just twisted God's word, and I've shown it clear as a bell. So, uh, with someone like me, with my personality, I'm an extrovert. I like being with people, and I, uh, I do a lot of talking. Uh, obviously, that's part of my job. So, um, the idea of going and being still and alone and quiet never made much sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make any biblical sense either, because Jesus didn't practice it, and the passage you quoted from 1 Kings doesn't teach it. And, and like, I could get my head around, like, okay, I'm going to go have my quiet time, but quiet time was mostly, like, reading the Bible, praying, journaling, doing something like that. Reading the Bible and praying. See, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Yet Jesus, he went into desolate places to pray. No, 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 this is talking about something different. This is talking about sitting and not accomplishing anything. Not actually... What? So that's how he's defined it. The, the, uh, the spiritual discipline of solitude and silence is sitting and accomplishing nothing. Yet none of the passages he quoted about Jesus talk about Jesus sitting in solitude and doing nothing. He went to desolate places to pray. Sounds like he accomplished something, doesn't it? Doing anything. Just being. So none of this made sense to me until I left, I left advertising. So some of you know that I used to work in advertising. And I had this very overwhelming clarity, this sense that I was no longer supposed to do that anymore. But I was not told what I was supposed to do after that. And, and so I left advertising and I uh, went to seminary, which is, I guess, what you do when you don't know what you're doing in life. Um, <laughs> so any of you out there who are kind of wondering what's next, the answer is seminary, always. <laughs> it's that simple. Uh, so anyway, I go to seminary, and for three years, I'm trying to sort of sort out what it is I'm supposed to do. And I went and met with counselors and um, psychologists, and I met with mentors and supervisors and all kinds of different people to try and help me get this stuff. I went through these uh, personality inventories. I took career counseling tests. I did all kinds of things. In fact, one of them, there I am three years into seminary after I've left the world behind, and one of the first things on the list of things that I should be involved in in the career counseling Guess what? Advertising, right. I'm like, woo thank you, Jesus. Uh, so that was unfortunate. No, really, you should get out of the pulpit and go back to that because you don't know handle, how to handle God's Word. You are literally sending people to hell. So I basically hit the wall. I'm like, I, I can't seem to find what it is I'm supposed to do, and, I, and I'm sitting there trying to sort all of this out. And I stumbled upon a spiritual teacher, a spiritual director, who was a retired pastor. Okay, a retired pastor. Listen carefully. Of 30 years, and she lived... And she? She. What does that tell you? ...in a Quaker retirement community. So she, she, a retired pastor, she. 
the Bible forbids. There's no such thing as a female pastor. There is no such biblical animal. And when I went to meet with her the first time, what I learned very quickly is that she had absolutely no interest in all the stuff I was asking. Like, I, want, I wanted to know, like, okay, I've got this and this, I'm good at this, but I'm not very good at this, and I want to understand this, maybe I should do this, and, uh, and she didn't bite at all. She just kind of sat there and listened, and, and after a little while, she, she informed me that the way she likes to operate is, when we come together, we sit in silence together. What, is she a Buddhist guru? This is Eastern meditation, clearing your mind. This is not what Jesus did. I'm like, awesome. That's... That's just what I want to do, because I love silence. <laughs> and so, so we would learn, we would practice this together. We would sit together for the first 10 or 15 minutes of our time together in silence together. And it was very odd. It wasn't awkward, but it was odd for me. And I, I started to kind of learn how to anchor in her silence. And then she would give me different instructions and ways of, of sort of techniques to help me practice silence on my own. That was the only thing she was after. And she was convinced that she said, the answer to your question, you will not get by looking out there. Okay, listen carefully. The answer to your question, you will not get by looking out there. You won't find it in God's Word. Where would you find it? Your only way to get this answer is going within. The only way to get your answer is to go within. Hang on a second here. Doing a little biblical work again. Just, just reminds me heart. I'm going to do a New Testament search for the word heart in the Gospels here. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, uh. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> From within, and Jesus says for Matthew five uh, nineteen, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, you know those things. Um, <laughs> slander. These are what defile a person. Yeah. Um, so uh, Matthew five uh, nineteen, Jesus says out of the heart comes evil thought. So you you want to turn us inward there, dude? Your spiritual female pastor guru told you to go within to find your answers? Yet Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Yeah, I'm not going to find anything useful by looking within. And practicing silence. And so I started doing this. And over the course of about a year of... Notice, I want to point something out to you just construction-wise of how he's uh, constructed this false teaching. What he's done is, early on, he's taken you to some passages of Scripture. He's completely twisted them and drawn false conclusions from them. And now now that he's got you hooked, or his listen not you guys, but his listeners hooked into believing that what he's teaching is biblical, he's now talking then now not about he's the, the Bible is left. He's now talking about his own personal experience to see because that his own personal experience will then verify and validate his false interpretation of scripture. You see, here's what the Bible teaches, and boy, I've experienced this in my own life. Take a look. You see, the two go together. I'm experiencing what the Bible promises and teaches. 
Yet the Bible doesn't teach any of the things that he said it taught. Of practicing the silence regularly, and it started, it was brutal for me. I mean, I could last five minutes, and then I'd be like, Whew, okay, I'm done with that. Oh, that was great. Awesome. Okay, now I can talk again <laughs> and, uh, and think. And, uh, and so it took a while for me to kind of get, get into this rhythm, but something astonishing happened in this process. And the best way I can describe what actually happened is, is through a metaphor. Um, some of you have had this experience, I'm sure. The other day I'm driving along, and I am in an area that I'm unfamiliar with. I've got some directions, and I'm looking for a particular sign that I'm trying to, you know, turn onto a particular street. And as I'm driving along, I'm, of course, I'm blasting some tunes. I've got, like, a big subwoofer in my Prius, and... <laughs> And I'm, that's just how I roll. So I know many of you are jealous. Subwoofer in the Prius. Nobody does that. Anyway, and I'm, of course, rocking out to Yanni or something awesome like that. And, and Yanni threw these big subwoofers. Kill him. Um, I'm driving along, and as I'm approaching what I think might be the area I need to turn, I lean forward, and I reach for the stereo, and I turn the volume down. How many of you have ever done this? Yes, that should be all of you, by the way. <laughs> if you hasn't raised your hand, you're lying or lazy. Anyway. So he drives a, a Prius, which means he's an environmentalist, and he listens to Yanni, which is New Age music. Okay, this, you know... There's, isn't there some guy out there who has a great comedy sketch about people who drive blue Priuses? Maybe I'm showing my unsanctified nature here. Sorry. So you turn the volume down. Now, why would I or any of us do this? Why do we do this? What does an acoustic sense, an acoustic stimulant, have to do with a visual stimulus? Where is this taught in the Bible again there, Shane? Notice the spiritual side of hand. He... Now, we've got the illusion that everything he's teaching now is spiritual because it, it he showed us from the scriptures that supposedly that we're supposed to practice solitude and silence, clearing of your mind, accomplishing nothing. And now he's just, you know, now that he's built this foundation you know, and created this house of cards that makes it appear like this is what the Bible teaches. Now all of his ex experiences flow from that. Yet the Bible doesn't clearly teach any of this stuff. How are these connected? Did you just say rain <laughs> or the brain? <laughs> the brain, yeah, very true. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's uh, Captain Obvious. That's good. Um, I've got more of that coming. Good. Uh, so one of the reasons this happens is because the brain uh, and the human senses draw from a finite pool of resources. There's a limited number of resources. So what that means is when you overstimulate one sense, you begin to draw resources from the other senses, and you dull the awareness of those senses. So this is why turning the radio down actually diverts resources to the visual sense so that you have more acuity in order to see the turn that you're about to make. This is exactly what the practice of silence does. It turns the radio down. It turns the inner monologue of the mind down long enough that you can look for signs of God. Okay, making a claim about God, 
Silence turns the inner monologue of the brain down so that you can look for signs of God. Where is this taught in the scriptures? Because none of the passages he's brought up actually teach that. None of them. This is not a clear teaching of scripture anywhere. In other words, somebody made this up and he's following it, following along with it now. But it's not Christianity and nor is this a Christian practice. And this is exactly what happened to me. The, the more that I learned to turn down the mind and the inner monologue, the more I made space and, and developed attentiveness to the movement and the voice of God. Now, I want to be... Well, well, okay, now remember, he's, he's sitting in complete silence, and now he's being attentive to the space and movement of God? How does he know that it won't go away if he has some orange juice? It could be just low blood sugar, don't you think? clear this isn't an auditory voice it's not wasn't for me visions and sounds it was an inner feeling and awareness of exactly what i was supposed to do and it wasn't actually about what i was supposed to do i discovered who i was who god made me to be okay did you discover if you i discovered who i was did you discover that you are by nature a sinner sinful and unclean a wretch guilty of god's of earning god's wrath is that what you learned and that out of your heart from within yourself was was vomiting up all kinds of vile disgusting things like murder and adultery and false witness and slander and all the things that jesus talked about there is that what you learned by going inside of you learning about your true self hmm <laughs> Which of the apostles taught us to do this, by the way? Which disciple is this recorded this practice and these, these discoveries in any of their epistles? This sounds like Gnosticism, not Christianity. And by the way, Gnosticism is the arch enemy of Christianity. And once I discovered that, I stopped asking all the questions. And what, what I learned I was made to be was a pastor. No, really, you're not, because you twist God's word. You're not made to be a pastor at all, sir. Whichever inner voice told you that, it was not God. And then my task was to just accept this curse, of course. <laughs> Some of you think I'm kidding. Um, no, no, it's wonderful. So... That makes sense. Are you with me? So what, what, one of the purposes and the values of silence, and I mean this now, any of you in this room who are, or anyone listening who is wondering what they should be doing in this life, what I can tell you from my own experience is that silence is an extremely powerful practice to help you uncover the thing God made you for. Okay, that's a great, nice, pithy statement, but can you back that up from Scripture at all? Which passage of Scripture says and teaches that? I'm not familiar with one. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying you ain't teaching it. But I'm not familiar with that passage that says what you just said. But that is not the main point of silence. It is not only about establishing or finding your direction. There's more to silence than that. And it's actually found in our passages that I just read to you. Each one of those verses that I kind of cherry-picked out of the Bible... 
Um, and then co- yeah, cherry picked is a great way of saying it because you completely took him out of context and completely biffed it on the prayer part that Jesus went into silent places to pray, not to sit there and do nothing to clear his mind and and hear you know, none of that. Collected them together. If you actually read those verses in context, you'll find something really fascinating. Yeah, like the prayer part that Jesus actually wasn't sitting in silence and solitude. Something incredibly remarkable happens immediately after each of those moments of withdrawing to deserted places. To pray. To pray. Not to, as you've said, clear the mind and do nothing and accomplish nothing. Jesus went into desolate places in order to pray. His mind wasn't in neutral at all. Immediately after one, Jesus comes back and walks on water. Immediately after another, Jesus comes back and feeds 5,000. Immediately after another, Jesus heals a blind man. Immediately after another, he heals a man who couldn't walk. Immediately after another, Jesus comes and drives out demons. Every single time Jesus withdrew to quiet places, Jesus comes back to do the most astonishing, incredible, extraordinary acts of kingdom activity. Oh, so he's saying that because Jesus went into silence and then he comes back and he accomplishes great extraordinary things of kingdom activity. By the way, he left out the prayer part. So was it the silence that brought that about or was it the uh, the prayer that brought that about? By the way, I, I completely deny that this is even a valid interpretation. I'll tell you why. This is known as the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo proctor hoc. I completely tortured that. Basically, uh, the uh, the Latin there means after this, therefore, because of this. Nowhere in the scriptures does it teach that the reason why Jesus was able to accomplish these great kingdom things, you know, walking on water and, and feeding people and all that kind of, because he went and had solitude and silence and, and cleared his mind and, and, and doesn't say teach that at all. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Okay, that's a it's a logical fallacy. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's an absolutely invalid conclusion he's drawing from the scriptures. The gospel writers, this is not an accident. They pair these things deliberately and intentionally. They want us to see that there is an intimate connection between Jesus withdrawing to quiet places and Jesus enacting God's shalom in the world okay again false conclusion let me give you an example of uh, this this logical fallacy this invalid uh interpretation uh used by the jehovah's witnesses okay i'm gonna i'm gonna look up a word here i'm gonna let me expand this out into all the bible the word is birthday did you know by the way those of you who are familiar with the jehovah's witnesses know that uh the jehovah's witnesses do not celebrate birthdays let me give you the biblical reason why, okay? Because you know they, these guys claim that they're they're great Bible teachers. Um, he, he, the reason why is actually pretty simple, okay? We I'm going to give you two two passages of scripture, and I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, we read, "On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in, in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. 
So in Genesis chapter 40, uh, verses 20, uh, four, uh, 20 through 23, we find out that at Pharaoh's birthday, there was a man who was murdered by Pharaoh. He was killed by Pharaoh. Okay, But this isn't the only incident that, that we find out something terrible happens at a birthday. Uh, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, we read, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to, uh, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they had held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. And so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but, but because of his oaths, his guests, he commanded it to be given to him, to, to her. So you see, listen, we've got, there's, in the Bible, birthdays are only mentioned two times. And both times, people are killed. Do you, do you think that's an accident? See, God was trying to tell us something here. That birthdays are evil. And bad things happen at birthday. Therefore, God doesn't want you to celebrate birthdays. That's what the, that's what's really being taught here in this in these passages. God doesn't want you to celebrate a birthday because in the only two times in the scripture are birthdays mentioned. Both times people are killed. You see what I'm saying? He's using the exact same false interpretive method that the Jehovah's Witnesses use to come to the conclusion that celebrating a birthday is something you can't do. Yet nowhere in the scriptures does it forbid the celebration of a birthday. There is no clear law against it. It's an invalid interpretive method here to draw that conclusion. We only come up with doctrines when there is a clear teaching to that effect. When there is a clear prohibition in scripture against something, that's the only time that we can say that that's false or a, or, or a sin or evil. So... Uh, Shane Hips here is using the exact same false interpretive method that the Jehovah's Witnesses use in making his claim here. And listen carefully. I'm going to back this up. I want you to hear what he's doing because this is not how to interpret Scripture. This is a very, very bad Bible twist here. Incredible, extraordinary acts of kingdom activity. The gospel writers, this is not an accident. They pair these things deliberately and intentionally. They want us to see that there is an intimate connection between Jesus withdrawing to quiet places and Jesus enacting God's shalom in the world. False. That's like saying that, that the reason why deaths are paired with birthdays is because God doesn't want us to celebrate them. False interpretive interpretation, period. They are intimately and inextricably bound together. And if do you, if even if what you were saying was true, it's not the solitude that was the thing that they were tied to. It's his praying. And the exact same thing is true of us. Oh man, this is just satanic. In Phoenix, where I live, when I first. Uh, arrived in Phoenix, I discovered something very interesting about the nature of the city. Um, when you walk out into the backyard of your brand new home, what you'll discover is a kind of a sweeping vista view of a six-foot 
gray concrete block wall. And it's really lovely if you like prisons. Uh, it's, it's a very kind of like, oh, that's serious. And, uh, and so the, a lot of people in Phoenix, when they see this block wall, they try to make it look a little prettier. And so we did that. We hired a landscape ar- architect to come out and beautify this backyard. And um, Phoenix is kind of a, uh, an arid place. You may be familiar with it. It's the desert. And so you get about 18 to 20 minutes of rain a year. And, uh, and so what you do is you have to install a, a water line, a drip line, in order to have plants flourish or survive. So we had these five or six bushes installed along this curving block wall that we had and uh, to kind of cover them up. And right after they'd been installed... Um, all of them worked great, except one of them began to have brown little tips on the leaves. And then over time, uh, I'm a little slow on the draw, they turned completely brown, and then pretty quick it was just like a collection of sticks jutting out of the ground. And I'm quick, so I figured out something must be wrong. Um, So I go over and I inspect uh, the, the situation. What they do is they bury a hose beneath the ground, that connects to the water source. It's about a foot beneath the ground in front of the plants. And then they bring a little quarter-inch line from that main hose all the way up to the surface of the soil that's positioned just at the base of the plant. And then it can drip just a little bit of water out, just enough to keep these things alive. So when I went to inspect, I turned on the water, and I went and checked, and sure enough, the line to that plant wasn't dispensing water. And so what I had to do was, obviously it may have been clogged or something, because that can happen when you're installing this stuff, dirt's everywhere. So what we did is I dug down to find the original source. I'd have to detach it and somehow clean it out in order to get the water out. So I begin digging, and as I'm digging, I notice that I'm digging back towards the wall, and I know that the line, the original water source is in front. So I'm like, this is curious. So as I'm digging, I get to the end of this line, somewhere a foot beneath the earth, and it's just sitting in the dirt. This is not useful for watering plants. So, so literally, they must have just installed it and like forgotten to attach it or something. So here I had this thing, this little quarter-inch line that was absolutely perfectly placed above the soil. Everything was great. It was there to provide water. Everything was fine with the exception of the simple fact that it was not connected to the source. (laughs) And as a consequence, it's, of course, useless. Every time Jesus withdraws... Okay, listen carefully. That story was to make a point, and it's not a valid biblical point. He's trying to draw a conclusion about something from an experience in his life and now apply it to Jesus and his false interpretation of what Jesus was doing when he would withdraw to desolate places. Remember, the scriptures are clear. Jesus would would withdraw to a desolate or quiet place in order to pray, not sit in silence, but to pray. Now listen. To quiet places. That is his way of connecting to the source of life. Before he tries to offer life, he connects to the source of life. Through silence? And that is the same with us. If you want to serve the world, if you want to bless the world, if you want to bring about justice, peace, healing, hope, whatever it is you want to bring, if you yourself personally are not connected to the source, 
you will be very hard pressed to do much of anything. And the way we connect to the source is through silence? Or is it through praying? A light bulb can be the highest wattage light bulb ever, and if it doesn't connect with the electricity, it's just glass and metal. It will not give light. Does this make sense? No, it doesn't at all, biblically. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Now, one of the questions that I was left with when I first started discovering some of this stuff is what is the relationship between silence and this connection? Okay, he's making a claim that you go into silence and sit and don't think and clear your mind and, and don't accomplish anything, don't pray. That's how you connect to the source of life. Again, you would be hard-pressed to find a single passage of Scripture that teaches any such thing. Boy, I can imagine Satan is sitting there going, I can't, you know, I've got this great lie that I'm going to feed to these Christians. And boy, when, when I'm done with them, they're going to be so, they're going to be disconnected from God and think they're connected to him. I'm going to get them to stop praying, and I'm going to have them sit in silence, and they're going to believe that they're doing something spiritual and connecting to God when all they're doing is completely unplugging from everything, and they're more disconnected from God than ever. What a complete satanic lie. How does silence help you establish the connection to the source of life? It doesn't. It can't. Silence is not a means of grace. It is not, it, God did not teach us to, to have silence. The reason that silence is so crucial is because this connection I'm talking about is fundamentally an experience of the heart. Really? It's an experience of the heart. Again, could you uh, uh, provide me a single passage of Scripture? Just a, I'll take a sentence fragment at this point as a starting point to show that, 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 that this is a biblical teaching. Not a concept, an idea, or a philosophy of the mind. Boy, that sure does sound spiritual, but it's complete gobbledygook. This experience is not an idea. This connection is not an idea. It is an experience. And as a result, the mind, the intellect, our words, our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts, and our philosophies have no access to the experience of this connection. They have no access to this connection. The mind... Where is this taught in Scripture again? Where does it say the mind doesn't have access to this kind of... Con where does it say that? He wants you to turn your brain off. Where does the Bible teach us to do that? Where is this supported by any clear teaching of Scripture? Any. Will not serve you in that connection. Oh, man. Now, it doesn't make it invalid. The mind is a beautiful thing. It's extremely effective. Yeah, we just want you to turn it off so that you can be deceived beyond measure. Because the brain is the one that sits there and goes, wait a second, that's not what God's word says. Well, well, wait a second, we're in danger here. 
But if we can get you to turn off the mind, you can silence that voice, and Satan will make you comfortable all the way to hell. It's very, very powerful. I love the mind. I love the intellectual life. I love to read and think and pray and do all that stuff. But, remember, but, but is a verbal eraser. But. Yeah, that's what I thought. Man. I'd love to think and read and pray, and but. Oh, man. And he's so chipper in his presentation here. I mean, this doesn't sound like the voice of the devil, yet it is. So sincere, so energetic, so, you know. But he's telling you to turn off a gift that God has given you, your mind. He's attacking the mind. It has limits. Oh, really? So we're supposed to reach out with the force? Are you Yoda teaching us how to use the force? Reach out with your feelings. Bad the mind is. You must learn to turn it off. This is not... Christianity. This is so dangerous. Anybody putting this into practice is literally putting themselves in the dangers of the fire of hell. This connection is found in the heart, and the language of the heart is silence. Bovine scatology, and boy do I wish I could use the, the, the stronger words right now. It's not appropriate and it's not sanctified. That is absolute bovine scatology. What he just said is a complete pile of dog poop. That is, Actually, bovine would be cow. So cow poop. That is the way we experience this connection. Lies. Absolute lies. Let me try a, a think of it this way. A, a week ago, uh, if you were here, you all had a chance to eat chocolate with us. We all ate chocolate together. Um... <laughs> I think I heard a woo back there. That was great. Um, now, is this a biblical uh, passage you're going to teach us? Oh, the, the more from your experience. What if none of us had ever eaten chocolate before in our life? We'd never known what it had tasted like. And so I brought in a master poet. And he gave you like an hour-long explanation of these brilliant silver-tongued words on exactly how chocolate tastes. And then right after that, I got a historian in here, and the historian came up, and he gave you the history of chocolate and all the ways that it has changed throughout history and the parts of the country and the world that chocolate comes from and how it's made and all that good stuff. And then after that, I got a scientist up here, and he showed you exactly the way in which your taste buds fire in such a way that they activate neural pleasure sensors in the brain, and that's why chocolate tastes so good. And then after that, I showed you a bunch of really, really, really beautiful pictures of chocolate so you could see what chocolate looks like like if you had never seen it before and then finally I bring up a bunch of people on this stage and I get them to tell you all the ways that eating chocolate changed their life <laughs> at the end of all that four hours or so that would take you would still have only an idea only a concept only a philosophy of what chocolate tastes like you wouldn't actually know what it tastes like. The only way you'll know what it tastes like is if you let it touch your tongue. Okay, watch what he does with his metaphor. He's not going to back it up with Scripture. Where does Scripture teach us that we can experience God through silence? Where? None of the passages of Scripture he brought up teach that at all. 
The brain was not made for tasting. It was made for thinking. The mind was made for thinking. Silence, the practice of silence, is like the tongue. Absolute lie. Absolute lie. This is not Christianity. This is Eastern mysticism. It allows you to taste and know, not just think and believe. Back that up with a clear teaching of Scripture, Shane. If you can't, you are telling a satanic lie. This practice is not Christian. It is dangerous. That's why the mind doesn't have access to this thing. It isn't made that way. Oh, that's just so... You sound like you're so knowledgeable on the subject, and all of this is nothing more than a load of crap. Now, to say all that doesn't mean that the mind is irrelevant. No, yeah, of course, yeah, but we just need to figure out how to turn it off so that we can, quote, taste God. The mind plays a crucial role in the life of the spiritual practitioner. Coming to teachings, reading your Bible, praying, thinking, journaling, reading books, whatever, all of that is beautiful, it's valuable, it's really, really helpful, but it won't get you... But, but, it won't what? It won't get you what? ...get you to the experience... And I want it won't get you to the experience. Really, where is the? Where are these experiences promised again? Where does God promise that we can experience Him in quote solitude and silence? There isn't a single passage of Scripture that teaches that, Shane. Not one. I want to be clear on this relationship between your mind and this experience because it's an important one. Oh man, this is so deadly. And the best way for me to describe that relationship. Uh, is through the help of a volunteer. So here's what we're going to do. I am looking for anyone in here who plays football, particularly a quarterback. Does anybody in here, have you ever at one time in your life, or are you currently a quarterback in football? Anyone? Raise your hand. Give me, give me hands. Raise them up real high. I'm seeing you, sir. Come on up. Big round of applause. What is your name? John. This is John, everybody. Give it up for John. You just did. John, where do you, uh, are you currently playing football? No, I played in high school. What did you play in high school? You were a quarterback? Okay, who did you play for? What was your team? Uh, Comstock Colts. Co excuse me? Comstock Colts. Comstock Colts. Anybody here a Colts fan? <laughs> are you serious? That's ridiculous and humiliating. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Thank you. Uh, okay, here's what I want you to do, John. Um, John is a, uh, a seasoned expert football player. He spent many, many, many hours refining the mechanics and the muscles in his arm so that he can throw a football. So what I need is a receiver of some kind, preferably in this section. Anyone? It doesn't have to be this section, but whoever the receiver is, someone with good hands, I need you to go back there to those doors. Wow. Come on now, receiver. Boom, right there. Yes, sir, you. I invite you to stand up, make your way back. Nice. See, did you guys see that? The spring and the step? That was great. Okay, so I want you to stand back there. I want you to be ready to receive a pass from our good friend, John. Now, John, here, you, can, you can do whatever you got to do if you need to kind of back up a little bit. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just sort of demonstrate for us what 
many, many hours of practice gets you in throwing a ball. Now, you don't have to, like, it doesn't have to be amazing. You don't have to, like, blow him against the back wall or anything. You, you just, you know, a pretty good arc and a reasonable spiral is kind of what we're looking for. And I want you all to pay very, very close attention to John's throw. Pay attention not only to the mechanics of the throw, but actually what the ball does in the air. And, uh, and, uh, and then you'll catch it. Whenever you're ready, let the spirit lead you. Oh, this uh, illustration has a point. Again, it's not biblical. <laughs> oh, yeah! Oh, man! That was awesome. That was fantastic. That was better than I expected. Well done. No offense, but... You know, no, uh, you were fantastic. That was great. Okay. I uh, also played football. <clears throat> You'll be happy to know. Um, I was very slow. Uh, I have bad hands, kind of concrete blocks. I had no real uh, arm. And so usually what happens when you're in that situation and you'd like to play football, they put you on what's called the line. You guys familiar with this? Offensive line. I think I was right guard. Um, I was also not very big. Um, so usually what happens then is your third string is what they call that, that position, and, uh, or bench warmer, another position I was intimately familiar with. So I played football until like junior year, from like fourth grade to junior year, until I figured out I'm no good at this. Why do I do this to myself? I love the, the, for the love of the game. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is show you, and I'm going to throw, I'm right-handed, but I'm going to throw with my left hand. And I'm going to show you, I want you to see the difference between a refined, muscular, well-coordinated arm and a weak, uncoordinated, not-so-good arm. Uh, and pay attention both to my form, how, how beautiful or really ugly it looks, um, and then also what the ball does in the air. You're going to need to come closer. <laughs> Honestly, I think I can kick a spiral better than what I'm about to do. Okay. So, right? This is it? Yes. I, I can't even think about the mechanics. Okay, here we go. This is going to be beautiful. You may want to avert your eyes. Very ugly. Here we go. You ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So, you can see, it may have been hard for you to really see the difference. <laughs> right? Of course, miles apart, right? Incredible. John, beautiful form, nice arc, perfect spiral, bullet right into the chest. Me, not so much. Um, okay, I want you to do the same thing. We're going to do it with a Nerf ball instead. And This time what I want you to do, I don't want you to release the ball. So what I want you to do is show us all of your art and beauty and muscle athleticism, but without releasing the ball, whatever you do, don't let go of the ball. So, uh, one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> A lovely, lovely form. You did great. That's all. Thank you so much. Oh, actually, one question. In general, as an expert on this stuff, when throwing a football, this is a complicated question, how important is the release? Very. He, he said very. Very important. The release, fair to say that without the release, the ball isn't going anywhere, yes? John, everybody, big round of applause.
the ball without the release isn't going anywhere. Okay, watch what he's doing. This isn't a biblical metaphor. He's just, okay, this is some profound thing he's supposedly saying. Again, has to do with, quote, silence. I know that sounds unbelievably obvious. I'm now Captain Obvious. <laughs> I need a cape. Um, so, why do I show you this? What does this have to do with what we're talking about? The mind... Our minds, the mind is the arm. Uh, where is this taught in Scripture? And every time you come and listen to a teaching or read the Bible or read a book or do anything that involves a kind of intellectual processing, you are refining, strengthening, and coordinating the mechanics of the arm. There's great value in that. But... When trying to throw a football, that can be extremely powerful. Here, I feel a butt coming. To not exercise and refine the mind, you end up looking like what I looked like. <laughs> but. I knew it. Silence is the release. Bovine scatology. That's absolute scubalon. Crap. What he's saying is not true. The practice of silence is when you learn to release the mind. The mind releases. Again, this sounds. This is Buddhism. This is Buddhist mysticism. Trying to you know become nothing, clearing the mind. Um. Learning not how to uh, desire anything. Oh, man. And the ball is free. If you're looking for freedom, it is found only in the release. No, freedom is found in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom is found in him, not in silence. Notice this is taking us completely off of Christ... And what he has done for us and somehow trying to basically disassemble and, you know, backwards reconstruct Jesus's spirituality in order that you can experience the same things that Jesus did in his spirituality and follow in his spirituality. This isn't Jesus's spirituality at all because prayer that's wiped away by the butt. Silence is the thing. Complete twisting of God's word. What that means is, even I, with an unrefined intellect in that sense, my arm unrefined and uncoordinated, the ball still flew through the air. But when John, with all of his muscles and all of his skill, if he didn't release the ball, the ball didn't go anywhere. This is the practice of silence. It is the practice of releasing ourselves into the heart of God Really, where does it say in Scripture, through silence, we can release ourselves into the heart of God? That sounds real spiritual. Wow, he used big words. It sounded so loving. We're going to release ourselves into the heart of God. And, you know, God is love. And, oh, this is just, I can get a warm, tingling sensation just thinking about it. Where is this taught in Scripture? Anywhere. Anywhere. Where does it say that? We can release ourselves through silence into the heart of God. 
where? That's like saying blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. I'm hearing words, but in reality, the translation of the words is like listening to Charlie Brown's teacher. Doesn't mean anything. And connecting with the source of life so that we actually have life to give. Oh, absolute garbage. Does this make sense? See, you can sit in silence all you want. It may be a nice thing to do for sanity, but you ain't connecting with God that way. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that that's how you connect with God. Silence is not a means of grace. It is not a means by which we communicate with, experience God. God hasn't promised to be there for us in the silence. You with me? Okay. No, I completely disagree with you, and no, it's not okay. We're going to practice some silence together now. Okay, listen, you want to know what this sounds like? What the silence thing is? He's going to guide us in this. Follow along. You may want to get yourself into the lotus position, if you can, in order to unkink the energy of God. And I'm going to give you just a few instructions for how to go about doing this. Uh, and then afterwards, I'll just say a few words, and then we'll be done. Did I mention that this was supposedly being taught at a, quote, Christian church? Uh, Rob Bell's church, by the way. Who, uh, Rob Bell being a rock star among youth and his NUMA videos, you know, and the darling of Zondervan Publishing. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to ask you to sit up straight, put both feet on the floor. Everything up until this point in the sermon has been about refining the mechanics of the arm. Now we're going to practice the release. Oh, man. This is supposedly taught at a Christian church. Listen carefully. And hopefully experience the freedom. So sit up straight, comfortably, become aware of the fact that you have a body, it's a, it's a wonderful gift you have. Just Really, duh, become aware that you have a body. I was completely oblivious to that until I stubbed my toe on the bedpost this morning. Then I became painfully aware that I had a body. Wow, I had no idea. Just come to presence in your body. Where, where did the disciples' practices come to presence in your body? Where? And now I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and turn your attention from the outside to the inside. That's the oh, man. I can't believe this is being taught at a, quote, Christian church. The point of closing your eyes is to turn awareness inward. Back in the old day, we would close our eyes and bow in prayer. Now we're closing our eyes and becoming aware of our bodies and turning inward rather than outward to God? Oh, boy. I'm going to ask you to become aware of your breathing. You don't need to change it. You don't need to do anything with it. Just become aware of your breathing. Am I in Lamaze class? Push! Push! Pay attention to the sensation just beneath the nose. As you breathe in... Unbelievable. There's mass hypnosis or something. It, a slight cooling sensation as you breathe out, maybe warmth. Just become aware of these things. When you're sitting silently, notice the way the mind is constantly conceptualizing this moment. Constantly 
thinking and talking. You have an inner monologue and it's moving. Notice the way the mind will either fixate in the past and think about something that has happened. Or What we're going to do now, he's going to teach us how to stick a stake into our mind and kill it. Or wonder and wander into the future and get preoccupied with the future. You don't have to stop it. You don't have to judge it. Just notice it. Notice that this is what the mind does. This is what the mind is made for. And if you try to stop your mind, it's like trying to stop the lungs from breathing. It is its nature to think and wonder and ponder and move. That is its nature. The practice of silence is not stopping the mind. It is learning to gain distance from the mind. Uh, unbelievable. You're not trying to cut off your arm. You're trying to allow the arm to release. What kind of self-deception is this, man? Sometimes the mind gets really sticky. Sticky? Yeah, there's, there's a description. It's real sticky. Only if you can open up my skull and stick your fingers into it. We have to learn what it means to let it release and relax and be free. Oh, man. So sometimes the best thing to do is not to judge the mind, but simply to watch it dance and bounce around and move. Same way you might watch... And Jesus did this when he was in desolate places. I don't think so. It says he was praying. That means he was talking to God the Father. Watch a monkey. His, ma his mind was moving. Now listen to what he's going to describe your mind as, as a monkey in a cage. He in a cage, bouncing around the inside of the cage. Our task here is to learn to step out of the cage and simply watch it. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to stop it. Just gain distance from it and let it dance. Your mind is a monkey in a cage doing a dance. Do you think those metaphors are random? If you find yourself inside the cage dancing and bouncing around with it because it really looks like a lot of fun, the mind, and you want to bounce around and dance around with it, that's okay. What I'm going to ask you to do is exhale gently and fully. And on the exhale, that is a symbol of the release. In that moment, you let go of the ball. In that moment, you step outside of the cage and you learn to watch the monkey bounce around again. The practice of silence is all about gaining distance from your thoughts, the same way that a plane, when it takes off, gains distance from the ground. A complete lie, and Jesus didn't do anything of the sort, nor did he teach any of this. The cars are still there. They just become smaller and less consequential. Your thoughts are still there. They're just not as important. Your feelings, everything that's going on around. So, for the next two minutes... We're going to practice silence corporately and allow yourself to watch the mind and practice the release through your exhale. And that's supposedly how you experience yourself being released into the heart of God, the source of life. This is satanic and evil. So they're being silent right now. This doesn't make for really good radio. And, you know, I'm having a hard time distancing myself from my mind. Uh, by the way, the mind is something different than the brain. Um, just want to let you know that. And um, 
And what he's just said is uh, absolute garbage. It's not true. He's leading all these people to hell. I can't believe all these people are standing at Mars Hill eating up this stuff and thinking they're being fed the word of God and being taught Jesus' spirituality. Because that's what he said at the beginning, isn't it? That he this he wanted to follow in the spirituality of Jesus and that this was Jesus' spirituality. This is what he was doing in the desolate places. Jesus would go into a desolate place and he would watch his mind like a monkey in a cage as he would you know, release himself into the heart of God through silence. That's the implications of everything this guy taught. And it's all a lie. It's all absolutely 100% untrue. This is not how you connect with God. This is not how you connect with Christ. This is not how you connect with anything other than Satan and your own deceived self. This isn't spiritual. This isn't Christian. This isn't promoted in the church. This amen. was No, it's not amen. Sorry, uh, that's the wrong thing to do at the end of, quote, silence. Unbelievable. Now, a few things to keep in mind if this is a practice that interests you, if you're feeling like you need to discover that kind of inner place of the connection. If, if, if this is something that interests you, run. You've been deceived. The experience of God where you actually taste. Really, that's how you experience God and taste God. Again, could you show me that in Scripture there, Shane? Taste that God. And by the way, the moment you exhale and release, even in that one second, the connection is made. This is not complicated. This is not rocket science. This is, very this is a lie. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that this is how you connect with and or taste God. By the way, if you really want to taste God, uh, you want to know how you do it biblically? Communion, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Take, drink. This is my blood in the new co- of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You want to taste God? The only way the scriptures say that we can taste God is in communion. So tasting God tastes like a really bad Frisbee disc, piece of bread, if you can call it that, and some cheap wine. Very simple. It's hard to believe how simple it actually is, and it's hard to pay attention. It's hard to believe that anybody is believing you at all. Tension that you actually make the connection every time you release. Unbelievable. But you are. That's the gift. That's what God... No, there is no gift here. God did not promise this as a gift anywhere. You have not demonstrated that from Scripture, sir. You are lying. God gives. It's just the way it is. I don't know why it is, but it is. It isn't. You're lying. Now, if you're, if you're a person who's tried this stuff in the past and it hasn't worked and you can't stand it, kind of like me, um, the, the thing that freed me, that helped me fall in love with the power of can't wait to hear it. this practice was when I learned something. There is no such thing as success or failure when you're practicing silence. <sighs> Those categories don't exist. Unbelievable. Really, where does it say that in the scripture there, Shane? Any passages, any texts at all say anything of the sort? And that means that if you're sitting there and you had a million and five thoughts in your two minutes, and every exhale you were trying to release and release and release and release, that is not worse than someone who did one exhale released and was completely in serene peace for the whole two minutes. Unbelievable. That is not the point of this practice. Over a lifetime, it doesn't get better or easier. What does change 
is not the five minutes or the up to 20 minutes that you might want to do this. Those moments, depending on your life circumstances, will either be frenetic and painful and challenging, and you'll wonder why you wasted your time, and other times you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm a master at silence. <laughs> the point is not the 20 minutes. Oh, I've mastered silence. Well, there's an accomplishment. Can you put that on a resume? The point is how you begin to experience life the rest of the hours of the day. You begin to live from the very source of life. The connection is... Lies. This is nowhere stated in Scripture. Complete and utter lies. It's made, and you are free to begin offering life for the world. Baloney. The, uh, the, the life of the world, the, the, the life that we're supposed to offer the world, is life in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of their sins, won for them by Christ's death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave for our justification. So the life of the world is teaching them how to experience and practice the silence. Absolutely false, sir. You are pointing people in the wrong direction. You're pointing them inward rather than outward to Christ and him crucified. I can't believe this is being taught at Rob Bell's church. Uh, anyone think that Rob Bell doesn't agree with this? I mean, after all, he does teach there, right? You all have been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Okay, we're done. Folks, what you've just heard is not Christianity. This is Eastern mysticism being brought into mainstream Christianity by a man who is... Oh, I can't believe this. This is at Rob Bell's church. Unbelievable. This is absolutely a danger. Those who are practicing this are sending themselves to hell. This is not Christianity. This is something completely different. And we must pray for Rob Bell, for Shane Hips, and for the people at Mars Hill Church, Bible Church there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who are being fed this stuff and being told it's the word of God and Jesus' spirituality, and they are being lied to and being deceived. Nothing good can come of this. This is pure and straight satanic poison. And we must pray and reach out to these people in love and share with them the truth. Which is what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Lord, we pray for Rob Bell, we pray for Shane Hips, and we pray for the people at Mars Hill Bible Church. Please, Heavenly Father, in your gracious mercy, Release them from this deception. Lift the blinders from their eyes. Show them the shackles and the chains that come with this teaching and how they are being drugged to the hell itself in the pit of fi fire through this false teaching that claims to be Christian but is anything but. Lord, have mercy on them and set them free from this deception. We ask in Jesus' name. Well, folks, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that your financial support is, is critical in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Would you please support Fighting for the Faith? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. It allows you to send in your gift instantly, securely, online. 
Or if you'd like to pay by check, you can by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Wow, I, I'm, my jaw's on the floor. I mean, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith, and that, from my point of view, is just frightening. Our prayers go out to those people. Pray that Christ would set them free from this deception. Unbelievable. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won for you by Jesus' victorious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.